When they first heard about this thing, it was crew expendable. The next time they sent in Marines, they were expendable too. What makes you think they're gonna care about a bunch of lifers who found God at the ass end of space? You really think they're gonna let you interfere with their plans for this thing? They think we're... we're crud. And they don't give a fuck about one friend of yours that's... that's died. Not one. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Fuck it. Let's go for it. You're listening to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts. Patrick Reed. Christian Z. That <laughs> <laughs> is my fault because I did a weird, a weird name. Let's I'll make it serious this time. Okay. Okay. Also, I'm, I'm keeping that in the episode. Patrick Green. Christian Motzka. And Andy. Oh, Welcome really to good. the show, everyone. Hello. Man, that was good. That was really good. Here we are, the four of us. This is our first official, well, formal recorded episode post alien day i know we had the charlie de la zarica episode the commentary that came out last time and that was really fun um sorry you missed it andy it was great hopefully you can listen to it but uh we are in our alien 3 30th anniversary celebration and we're here to talk about a character from the film which will be one of hopefully many conversations about characters in the film and that character today is leonard dillon played by charles s dutton what the fuck is this bullshit that's coming down? I don't want no more bullshit around here. Uh, Leonard Dillon, let it be known, is also a, a relatively famous musician. So if you Google Leonard Dillon, you're going to get mostly hits for this. He just died in 2011, but a really kind of prolific musician. And then you'll get a couple of hits in there for our boy tonight. who We're talking about who we're incredibly excited about. Oh, yeah. The murderer. But- but before the, the murderer and rapist of women. But before we get to that, though, uh, I want to issue a formal apology to Mr. De Los Rica. I painstakingly tried to make sure that the spelling was correct in her name. In the process of it, my phone capitalized the D, and I was so sure, close. Yeah, it was my phone. I'm I'm sorry about that, Charlie. Uh, but that, as you can see from the response to that, that was incredible. And patrons. Uh, those of you who are not patrons might be interested to know patrons got that four and a half or so days before the rest of you did. So uh, that was pretty cool. And we're going to try to do more of that going forward of getting stuff out early when we can. So uh, if you're interested in joining Patreon, obviously we'll say this again throughout the show, but it's patreon.com slash perfect organism, I think, or just search for us on Patreon or go to perfectorganism.com slash support. Uh, but all that aside, yeah, Dylan is a character who is just a throbbing heart in alien fandom. He is like, for many reasons that we'll get to tonight, a cornerstone of why alien three is so important to me. And I think to a lot of people, but he also says very deep truths, I think about the human condition in ways that are so eloquent and so beautifully stated. And, you know, the character went through so many different changes with the rewrites of the script and it evolved and it changed. And then Charles S. Dutton got his hands on it. And he just gave us honestly one of my favorite performances of 
any part in any movie I have ever seen. So uh, yeah, Dylan to me is a, is a really special one and I'm excited to, to talk about him tonight. As am I. Um, and we can certainly pass this around, but I wanted to at least mention we were having some discussions before we started recording. As we were, as I approached this episode, I was like, okay, I'm going to talk about this character of Dylan that I really love and I've loved since I saw the film. Um, but it kind of dawned on me, I loved this character who is a rapist and a murderer. Um, and I thought, okay, this is, I have to think about this um, before I kind of throw my support behind him. Um, I guess morally speaking, I mean, kind of, it's it's a movie, so we can kind of let some things slide. But I thought this would be a great, for me at least, an entryway into some of the things even Dylan talks to talks about in terms of forgiveness and atonement. And um, they're always kind of in prayer. There are these essentially monks um, that are living on a prison planet that are prisoners. And what does that mean? What does their faith which we don't even really know what their faith is but what does that mean for them how does it iterate in them and are they have they atoned for their sins quote unquote so that'll be it should be interesting to talk about further yeah and to a pivot off of what you said about loving the character, but then obviously trying to reconcile that with being a murder and rapist. Um, you know, the, he was definitely one of the standouts from the first time I saw it, you know, and, and however many times I've seen it since. Um, and there's definitely something to be said for loving the things he says or some of the actions he takes and still taking into account Right, all of that, and just loving the character, the fact that his character, whether we don't love everything about him, like kind of stands out, and he, and he absolutely stands out. Um, so there's a lot to talk about and kind of dissect, and I'm really looking forward to it. He's also sort of the the Paul Reiser of the film for me, because I was a fan of Rock, the TV show that Charles Dutton in 1991 he started that show, and. So I, it was the same way that I knew, I knew Paul Reiser from My Two Dads to have a, a preconceived notion of who this person is and then see a very, very different character. Um, and then to find, of course, and this, this seems to always come up with that Charles Dutton uh, did serve time, had committed a murder, served his time, and then became an actor. So you can't help but wonder how much of his own personal experience he brought to the role. Um, I. I love the character as played by Charles S. Dutton. I don't love the character on paper. I think that a, a lesser actor would not have done as memorable a performance. So for me, it, it really is the marriage of these lines, good or bad, and this actor to, to create this amazing performance. Yeah, I'm glad that, I mean, kind of jumping right into it, I'm glad that you're bringing up Charles S. Sutton's past because he's very open about it. And this is something that, you know, is out there. And it's something that I don't want to dwell on because sort of like Dylan, I don't want to define him by mistakes that he made in the, you know, earlier in life. But it is also, you know, they're hugely ramified mistakes. It was actually manslaughter he was convicted of. And then he was released from prison and then went back to prison for um, having a deadly weapon. So he was like, 
for possession of a deadly weapon. So he he was in and out of you know the criminal justice system for a long time growing up and was very much a product of the environment that he grew up in. You know, everybody he dropped out of school when he was a kid uh, because that's just what everybody else had also done. All of his peers had done that. All of the interesting stuff going on was on the street, and not in the classroom. And he was sort of like, well, I guess this is my path. And that was really all that he saw, you know, around him. And the the rise of Charles S. Dutton from I mean, somebody who was responsible for the death of another human being to this, you know, incredibly beloved actor is, is a really amazing story. You know, he went to Towson university and went to the Yale school of drama, got his master's there. Um, you know, he's, he's an inspiration in that way, but the baggage of that early incident and, and of his early life is something that, you know, you can't analyze the character of Dylan without looking at the actor Charles S. Dutton as well. And it's another one of these cosmic, and I, I really do mean that like cosmic coincidences that define Alien 3 for me. Because it's a movie, I mean, I, I agree with you on paper. I don't think Dylan is a great character. I think on paper, Alien 3 kind of sucks. I mean, we we've done a whole series of episodes on not only the script revisions, but the actual remember we did a whole episode on the actual shooting script and went <laughs> went through the actual thing they filmed with. And, uh, you know, and it was a disaster. Like there's just, it's really doesn't read well. There's continuity issues all over the place. A Ripley sounds weird. There's a lot of problems with it. And then somehow through the weird metallurgy that is creating films, things happen like these. And, and then you look at a character like Dylan and like, who, what other actor could have possibly played him other than Charles Dutton? Not only because of his past, which mirrors the characters and kind of a, a, a very bizarre way, but also because of the conviction that he brings to it. And I just want to say something before I, you know, move on and pass it over about conviction. To me, that's what that's what Dylan represents, right? D- Dylan is is he is defined by his conviction, you know, in terms of his religious beliefs, by his beliefs in the people around him, in his beliefs in redemption, and by his beliefs in the coming of the end of the world, right? We're talking about his religious beliefs, right? It's in the movie it's referred to as a millenarian apocalyptic uh christian theology right i think that's what they say fundamentalist yeah yeah um so like to be a millenarian of course means that you're you're believing in the coming of the end and the transformation of the world around you into the you know promised future right so like they are people who are living everything defined by what is to come and the, the the conviction in that is so is so deep but i also mean conviction just from an acting standpoint in the way that he delivers his lines throughout the movie um, Charles S. Dutton did this great interview that uh, maybe I'll put in the show notes uh, for people to read because it's really, really good. But he talks about some of his acting inspirations in it. And he says he kind of his entire school of of acting at, you know, in his whatever 70s now that he's in, like what, what he's come to believe is that acting boils down to what James Cagney said, which is you look somebody in the eye and you tell them the truth. And he was like, you know, the second I realized that every other, you know, bit of method acting and, you know, crazy Stanislavski and stuff, like it all kind of went out the window because I realized like all I had to do was be honest. And that's who Dylan is. Dylan is the most honest character, really, I think in the, I would say even in the entire franchise, like there is nothing dishonest about Dylan, including his past, including the terrible things that he did. He defines himself by those things. You know, he doesn't apologize for them. He 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 carries them as part of the yoke that he wears on him all the time. So so Dylan, I just think is such an ever refreshing character, and um, and I think Charles S. Dutton is is really why that is. I agree with you, Christian, on that.
I think it's important to note in terms of who he represents, not just as a character, but even iconically, he's the first African-American character that's in Ripley's life the way Parker was. Um, of course, we have Apone, we have Frost, we have other characters and aliens that are present, people of color, men of color, black men. But Dylan is a character that um, becomes Ripley's right-hand man. And Parker was that for her as well. Um, so I really believe in Patrick, you and I talked about this before. Dylan really echoes Parker in some fundamental ways, but also being diametrically completely the opposite of who Parker is. They both have their bravado and their this kind of gravitas about them, but they're very integral people to Ripley's journey. Without Dylan, Ripley wouldn't have made it out. She just wouldn't have. Um, even though at, at, at one point she wants him to help her make it out. He's like, no, this isn't your time. And no, we got to do other things. Um, if without him doing that, Ripley wouldn't have been able to kind of give the ultimate sacrifice. So I really think her, his position within her journey is so, so important. She became who she became because of Dylan. Um, he was almost like an apostle. You know, we talked about the Jesus Christ motif, the religious motif of who Ripley represents. And certainly Ripley in the setting of that prison became Jesus and she had her followers. They became her followers. There's this transition where they started to believe like, okay, we don't know what we're doing, but she does. What should we do? Um, and then you had, you know, you had obviously your Judas who was um, not Morse, but uh, the guy who lets him out. What's his name? Um, Golic. Golic, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I really, Dylan really became Ripley's Paul. Um, and was there to ensure her survival, not just for her, but for himself and everyone else as much as he could, as long as he could. And uh, as I think about that, the more I think about that, the more profound it becomes. I've said in, in past episodes, I feel like there's always a character who is presented as almost an obstacle to Ripley. You have Parker, you have Hudson, and you have Dylan of someone who up front gets in her face, doesn't believe her. And, and she has to shut them down or prove them wrong and, and win them over. And for the third iteration of this, Dylan is absolutely fascinating. He's, a, he's you know, maybe, maybe even my ca categorization isn't correct, but using that, it's not stale, it's not tired. Dylan is fascinating. And I like your, your idea of the conviction. He didn't have to tell her why he was there. And we can question even, is it, is it brutal honesty or is he actually scared of her and trying to scare her away? I'm sure we're going to talk about the, the, uh, the breakfast scene or whatever you want to call it. Um, I was actually rereading the Alan Dean Foster version of it. And there's a really funny, um, in his version, it says, I'm a murderer and rapist, period, of women with, as a separate sentence, <laughs> which is definitely not how the line is delivered. But uh he also he also in the novelization has a single dreadlock, I believe. 
Really? Which is interesting. Yeah. And I, I yeah. think a symbol of his penance, because I think he knows the lice are going to attack him and he keeps a single dreadlock. That's one thing I remember that that's the novelization. I know people shit on it all the time. It's like my favorite of all of the novelizations because it's so different and so bonkers and so out there. Anyway, Christian, go ahead. He also in, in the novel. And again, this isn't coming from anything except Alan Dean Foster having some fun and getting paid by the word, but uh, they go into, well, I didn't think that women were allowed. He said, oh, there just aren't any women sent here. There's plenty of women who are incarcerated. We just don't have any. And so th- that, in an interesting way, takes away the possible interpretation of sexism in that scene. When, he's, when he calls her intolerable in the movie, we have to question, wait, why is she intolerable? Is, it, is she intolerable simply because she's a woman? And the novel goes a different direction. So it's just a, an interesting read for that. Yeah, to go back to the the conviction, right? That strength of of his his perceived moral conviction, right? Or his his perception of where he's come from and how far he's like his journey. He definitely recognizes that in Ripley, right? And again, just like in in the other two movies, there's always somebody who recognizes that strength. And whatever his initial sort of thoughts of her is, he turns that corner because he sees part of himself in Ripley. Um, And I think more so than any other character here. I mean, obviously you have Clemens bonding with her too, but I think Dylan matches her strength for strength in this more than anyone else. No one else in the film series stands up and, and says, all right, let's go do this. You know, there's, you have the we're all strung out stay frosty oh you patrick disagrees with I, me. I would argue that parker says that right because 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 it's his idea to pursue the alien in the first place once you get the incinerator units it's his i not really his idea he wants to kind of go haphazard but ripley's trying to be order be given order to but like first we do this and then we do this and he's talking over her. It's mm, like we okay. listen to me shut up so okay. he's he's kind of all over the place and she's trying to quiet him down okay. whereas yeah. with yeah. with dylan dylan's more like no this is what we have to do dylan's okay. kind of ordering ripley in a way yeah good point okay stand yeah, correct parker <laughs> parker's uh he's he's his energy is so so chaotic in that moment i mean which is just beautiful acting it's and and completely fits the tone of that movie. It would be very strange if any of the members of the Nostromo crew gave a speech like Dylan does. It would be very strange if any of the Colonial Marines gave a speech like Dylan as well. So it's kind of funny for a movie that everyone slags on for being so nihilistic and apocalyptic. It's the only place that you can have someone legitimately and with sincerity, sincerity give that kind of, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to die on my knees kind of speech. Oh, fuck! You're all going to die. The only question is how you check out. Do you want it on your feet? Or on your fucking knees? Begging. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. He's had, you know, pretty much a lifetime of thinking about that. Whereas the first two movies, they're just thrust into this survival mode. And here he is having spent years coming to terms with that. So you're right. 
there's that moment where it feels authentic. Like you were saying, there's a truth behind that. And in any other movie, it would have been like, where's this coming from? Right. They just want to get out of there. In this case, he's there. He's been there for however long. How long has, has he been there? Did he say exactly? I know, he was, know? Born, he was born in 2138 and it's 2179 in the events of the film. So that's his lifespan at that point. But I don't know how long he's been in prison for. But, okay. but you know, I would presume decades. Right. The, uh, the trading card. Is whoever wrote the trading card clearly didn't wasn't very comfortable with the source material. So he is listed as having committed two counts of rape and murder, the least amount practically that they could give him. He's like, okay, this still, you know, he said plural women. So we got to go with two. Um, it's kind of fun. I've been doing some research like um, SD Perry in her, in her Whaling Tani um, report, she gives a backstory to the religion that it actually is larger than just this one penal colony that it, it spans the whole uh, William prison system. And it's called the brotherhood. That's what they belong to. And she gives an excerpt of a sermon that, um, that, that he had given that is not in the film. It's her own, her own writing. And it's really good. It, it, it gives a, a much better idea of, you know, very much an, an angry God, um, concept of, of how they see themselves and how they see their creator. But again, um, other prisoners get much more elaborate backstories for the crimes they committed and how long they've been in there. So I, I feel like because he does tip over into the, the heroic or the uh, protagonist role, they're like, let's just downplay as much as possible what he's in here for. <laughs> But what's so funny is I would think if there was any character who would not want to downplay it, it would be Dylan, right? Like, like to, to me, again, going back to the conviction and I, I mean, we're saying conviction, he's also a convict. So it kind of makes sense. Like to, to me, like that, that is part of how he defines himself. You know, when we were reading the Sarah Welch Larson uh, book and we had her on, which again is great. If people miss that on alien, we did a lot on alien day. So that was one of the episodes, go back and make sure you listen to it. It was like two episodes before this one. Um, you know, she, she had a lot to say about the prisoners and about the way that they use religion. And, um, you know, of course she has a somewhat theological background, like a theological philosophical background. So she had some really cool illuminating things to say about it. And one of the main themes that she was hitting on was this idea that the prisoners in alien three have depersonalized themselves so much willingly that they have essentially defined themselves by negating themselves as individuals. Um, and so, you know, I think an interesting way to look at Dylan is through the lens of that because he is so he's so much more than an individual, right? Like the themes and the ideas that he talks about are so huge and so collectivist and they feel like, you know, like they belong they're, they're, He's such a humanist. It feels like, but he's also defining himself by like his, by getting rid of his humanity, by getting rid of the things that distinguish him, the things that make him who he is. So I, I guess I'm saying that because I'm thinking about the moments, you know, like if we look at Dylan through the things that he says, and I think like we've been saying, I think if there is a character, you can really judge by what they're saying. I think it is Leonard Dylan, you know, think about what, what he believes in. He believes, and he says this over and over again, including in the, you know, my favorite part of any alien film outside of the derelict sequence, which, you know, I know I get shit on because it's emotional, but the, the burial scene, the, you know, the, the lead works. Like his speech there, which has of course become very famous, similar to some of Charles S. Dutton's scenes in Rudy, you know, they're kind of part of pop culture. 
uh, his scenes in there, you know, say we, for example, we commit these bodies to the void with a glad heart, right? Because within the promise of every seed, there is a flower and every life, no matter how small. And he has this very deeply rooted belief that death is the beginning of the next stage. In an earlier version of the script, in the and the, so in the sequence when he's talking about not wanting to die on their knees and going out and fighting, he ends that by saying, "This is your first step towards heaven." Right. So so he also defines. He, he's aware of their corporeal surroundings. He's, he's aware of the life that they're living right now. And he's also aware that it's basically a crucible, according to his millenarian beliefs, for the birthing of the pearl that is the next stage of their, of their existence. Why? Why are the innocent punished? Why the sacrifice? Why the pain? There aren't any promises. Nothing certain. Only that some get called, some get saved. She won't ever know the hardship and grief for those of us left behind. We commit these bodies to the void with a glad heart. Within each seed, there is a promise of a flower. And within each death, no matter how small, there's always a new life. A new beginning. Amen. I have, you know, some friends who are in recovery from substance abuse, you know, disorders, for example, and a lot of them use language like that, this language of, you know, I am not ashamed of what I've done because there's no, there's nothing to be gained from being ashamed of it. I'm focusing on the future and I'm focusing on building and I'm focusing on what's to come. But with Dutton, with (laughs) with Dutton, (laughs) with Dylan, even, even his name is the same fucking thing. It's like, how perfect is he for this part with Dylan? Um, you know, he expands that really to this idea of what's to come, not just what's to come after his quote unquote recovery or after his sentence, you know, he stays because what is to come is so much greater to him than that. And then of course, speaking of what differentiates him from other characters, he's the only character we ever get. Um, Christian's going to have an exception to this. I guarantee because because you, you're a very close watcher, but I think as I'm, as I'm asked talking right here, that Dylan is the only character that goes in hand-to-hand combat on screen with an, with an alien. Is that true? Does anybody else actually punch an alien in the face? No. Right. <laughs> well, no. you never see him punch him. He just says, fuck you. And he takes he's punching him. There's, yeah, we don't some, ever see him. Throw oh, he's punch. got a fucking left hook in there. Yes, he is. No. Well, he's, he's close, close quarters combat to oh. actually physically. I mean, Parker gets hit in the face with a tail. He does. He, no, 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 no. I, I think Dylan is the only one um, for, for what it's worth, you know, didn't help him, but yeah, I, I think he's the one. He's the yeah, he one. did, right? Although you're right, Parker is the only other one who engages one sort of hand to hand, and it doesn't last very long. It's you know basically instant, but he does actually confront the the alien physically. But Dylan, like 
I mean, it's just what a great personification of this idea of, do you want to go out on your knees or go out fighting? Like that, I mean, it's just, it's again, one of these amazing sequences that the character gets in the movie that says everything you need to know. And he dies willingly and joyful. I mean, joyfully, that's the other thing too, right? We're so used to, by this point in these movies. I mean, I, I've like every single death that has come before this has been one of fear, right? Again, I'm making a categorical statement. So call me out if I'm wrong, but like, I can't think of another character who willingly dies joyfully. Like he dies with a smile on his face. You know, that is an amazing, well, I mean, I, it's an overhead shot. He's smiling. Jim. You know, he's <laughs> fucking smiling. Yo, he's well, punching. <laughs> he's smiling. I don't want no more bullshit around here. He's joyful. Well, I would challenge you on the, I think that moment where he takes his glasses off, you see fear, you see um, resolution, you see confrontation he's terrified but this is the right thing and i gotta do it that's what i i don't see joy i see resolve like this is what i'm here for this is what god put me here for to fight this thing to let that woman live i'm say like this is what i'm here for and he's ready but you can see fear in his eyes for a minute and then it just turns into resolve and then it turns to bring it on what are you yeah. gonna do just kill me if that's all you're gonna do i can handle that yeah, there's. I agree. There's a liminal moment there where he's afraid, and then. But to me, what's so fascinating is how quickly that goes away and turns into something that doesn't feel like machismo. It doesn't feel like he's trying to show off for anybody. It feels like it. It feels to me almost ecstatic. It feels like religious ecstasy almost. It's like this is the end of his life, and, and he knows it, and he's going to go so joyfully into that moment again. And I, I use joy in a non-ironic way. There's a joy. In Dylan's religious convictions, there's a joy in his in his belief in what's to come that is like very dark, and it's surrounded by darkness. But I don't know. I see I see a lot of joy. In that I yeah, you're fucking word. giving me shit. <laughs> I wouldn't use Nobody the term ever gave joy. Me nothing, Jamie. What the fuck? I say fuck. I wouldn't use thing. the term joy, but I would use the term. Uh, he is resolved. This is a man resolved in his faith he's resolved in where he is in terms of being on the prison planet he's a leader among the men next essentially down from aaron um he is the next in line as much as a convict can be clemens was a convict he's not a convict anymore he's just kind of there um but yeah i mean I, but I, I think what you're getting at i do agree with i think there is something about dylan and his 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 countenance that's very much i'm at peace and you rarely see someone at peace in an alien film um and even when things are happening and um people are being killed um he's just rolling with it he's not freaking out he's like you know what this is what god has for me he doesn't usually use those terms but you can see it this is a man of faith and typically people who are religious tend to view perceive everything through that lens anything they go through they're going to perceive through the lens of this is what religion has for me this is what god has for me this is my trial this is my triumph i'm here for god and and it, it's almost a peace they have you know about that and it is no more found in the character of dylan but i wanted to take us back to that breakfast scene because i think it's a really powerful scene and i think it's the first time Ripley underestimates her surroundings because up until then Ripley's kind of she's calling the shot she knows what she's doing she knows where she is the marines are kind of like all over they got their you know their bravado and their whatever and she's kind of like whatever you guys can do that but I know how serious this is but when she comes into 
the mess hall for breakfast or whatever time of day they're eating. It's a similar setup in Aliens where there's everyone at a mess hall, but she's not commanding attention. She's entered into the viper pit, into the lion's den. She has entered into a place where she is a threat, not because she is a woman, not because people hate women, but because most of the men there are, I don't, I, I don't know about most, seems to be a larger percentage of the men there are convicted of crimes against women. So, and then there's this reading that you see in her face and Dylan's face. Dylan's kind of like, you can almost see it in his eyes where he's like, God, what are you doing to me? Why, why would you do this to me? We've had a good place to wait here. Those words he does say. And she takes a seat and she's kind of in some ways challenging them, mocking them a little bit. The way, and in a way Ripley has never done before. I've never seen her act like this before. Um, but you, there's this, these visual cues in his, in Dylan's eyes where he's looking at her like, and he's like, yeah, I'm a murderer and I'm a rapist of women. And she's like, well, I guess I must make you nervous. And in that moment, I remember thinking, Ripley, you don't know what you're fucking doing. This isn't, this isn't like these aren't Marines that you need to like, you know, corral and take the lead of. These people will fucking kill you and you are their enemy. And they have been in a place where they have had rest and peace. Maybe not rest. I don't know what goes on in them, but as much rest as they can have, as much peace as they can find. And you can see the disappointment in Dylan's face of that she is present and that like what is this going to mean for us what is she what is this going to mean for our for our camaraderie for our unity now that she is here and that is a that whole scene maybe we can even do an anatomy of a scene sometime is really fascinating because there's a power struggle and ripley does not have the upper hand so from from my perspective you know as a woman who you know um has never been in that situation, but think of where she is, no weapons, right? She's vulnerable physically, obviously in that regard. And the one weapon she has in that situation to counter that is this perceived strength, this confidence, because she knows, you know, vulnerability to these men is like, that's, that's the jumping off point. Like they see a vulnerable victim that, you know, that's what they're going to attack. It's more about power. Right. So that's the only thing she's armed with. Plus she just doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> she's lost everything. So she's like, at this point, kind of bring it. But I think that's, I don't think she's underestimating them. I think, I think she's just, there's nothing else I can bring literally to this table except my confidence because that maybe will ward them off, right? Maybe that'll throw them off enough where I'm not this vulnerable. That's my take on it. A couple of things. Uh, first of all, she pours a glass of orange juice, so it's absolutely breakfast. I believe that this is day three. I think she crashes. She wakes up the next day. We have the autopsy. We have the funeral. Third day. She pours orange juice. So we know that it's breakfast. Uh, I think that she is honestly there to thank Dylan for the words that he said. I don't think she's lying about that. But it's such a trope in movies. If you're going into prison, you have to find the toughest person and you have to beat them up so that you have standing in the jail. 
and she can't beat him up physically. So I think that she honestly is looking to have a verbal confrontation and prove her prowess. And, and she does. And then as Andy said, she has no fucks left to give. She just, you know, she's so brutally honest about not having any faith and kind of poking at him for the, for what he's saying. Let me pose this question then. Do you think she should have joined them in that mess hall? I, no, I've, no. I've always felt like, what are you doing? This is not the place. This is not like, and maybe to your point, Andy, she was like, well, either I stand my ground and I make myself known to them. But at the same time, like there are how many men are there? 15, 20 men, however many there are. 25. 25. According convicts, to yeah. Andrews. Um, who, if they want to, can do horrible things to you. So my my first reaction was like, what are you doing? Why are you going in this room? Eat your breakfast alone. But maybe if she, I mean, she's probably, it's it's she's in a, between a rock and a hard place. If she stays on her own, she then becomes this mystery. Well, where is this woman? Where is she? But at the same time, I'm thinking, well, maybe they can wonder that, but she's still safer if they don't know where she is, as opposed to her presenting herself um, into the mess hall. But I think that's me responding to my fear about for her, my fear like, what are they going to do to you? Please be smarter to smarter than this. And she didn't seem like she was. Well, part of that is the script. They, mm-hmm. they repeatedly, Andrews keeps saying, keep her confined. You're, you're quarantined. And then the next thing, you know, we see her bopping off somewhere else. And the script needs her to do that because she has to investigate. She has to make these connections. But I wish that there had been some a, a better way to get her to interact with people instead of repeating that exact pattern of Andrew says you're confined to the infirmary cut to the next scene. Here's Ripley off on her own. Cause it wears thin after a little bit, like what is even going on with this? But I do feel like her deciding to go and thank Dylan for the words that he said is enough justification to get us there. And also I, this does parallel Ripley on the Sulaco saying, I feel like a third wheel. Is there anything I can do? She wants to show off that there's something that she can do. In that case, it's I can ride a, drive a power loader. Um, it's not a perfect comparison, but at least there's been an example in Ripley's life that we've seen of her finding herself in, a, in an awkward situation and looking to prove herself by performing a function or, or doing something. And, and in the cafeteria, it has to be she's witty. She has the ability to... Um, to beat people in a, in an argument or in a conversation because there's not much else that she can do there. I think it's, it's very analogous to the, to the, you know, I can drive a power loader moment in aliens, because I think part of what's important about the function of that moment is it's a continual negation of who Ripley is as we see her. Right. And like her being insubordinate, quote unquote, although there's no chain of command, but her like always doing what Andrews is saying not to do, you know, is very much in keeping with the Ripley that we know and love, right? It's like Ripley, like ever since she first broke protocol has not given a fuck about it ever since she's been primarily concerned with preserving life and staying alive. Right. Um, And so we see her doing that. Like we see her not being told what to do by a bunch of assholes and going off and doing what she wants to do. And then what is important though, is that in that moment, she hits a wall and that wall is Dylan, right? That wall is, is to, and that, and so are we. And that, again, there's this wonderful interplay between the audience and the script in Alien 3, 
right? We've talked about this many times, even just the last few episodes and the last six hours of commentary tracks that we've done. There's a really vital journey that we go on that mirrors Ripley's journey. In that, we start the movie with these this nuclear family that we're so in love with being torn apart. We, we, we feel actual loss as an audience, not just as an empathetic audience, but as an audience ourselves, because we lost those characters, which is really fucking terrible. And then we go through this whole thing and then we lose our ultimate hero at the end of it. And it's a real sense of a void. It's a really important loss to feel. Likewise, as an audience, we are so inspired by Dylan's speech and we are so emotionally grateful to him because he has helped put a balm on the loss that we suffered as an audience. And again, I, I'm reinforcing, we, we're not suffering this empathetically. We're suffering it as actual people because we lost those characters. And Dylan made us feel better and he made us cry and he made us release. So we want to thank him for that too. And then just like Ripley, we are rebuffed. And we are brought to this cold reality that the world doesn't function the way that we keep wanting it to. And this movie doesn't function the way we keep thinking movies should. This movie doesn't give us that emotional payoff where they become best friends. Like this movie presents, I mean, actual hostility back at her, which is so shocking and so appropriate, I think, for us as an audience, because then we have to go, okay, this is not the movie. This movie isn't done with us yet, you know? One of one of my favorite. Uh, I, I've, there's no way that I haven't brought this up before in the in the context of Alien Three, but I haven't probably since the first time we did a series on it. So my favorite author is David Foster Wallace, and my favorite quote by him is a quote that says, "The truth shall set you free, but not until it is finished with you." And to me, that drives home the point of Alien and why it's so powerful. And Dylan is that truth who is saying, like, you're you're you don't have a payoff yet. You know, we, we have a journey to go on and you're going to get there, but it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be what you expect. And so, yeah, again, like he's rebuffing the audience as much as he's rebuffing Ripley. And it's and it's part of the journey that we have with her in this movie that I think is so fucking important, because after that, like, what is there left of the Ripley? We know. I mean, it's also the first time like, it's the first time we see her with a shaved head yeah, outside of when she's actually doing it. Right. Uh, you know, it's the first time we see her with the prison garb on. So she doesn't even look like herself anymore. And she is now not able to function as herself either. And it's a real negation that, again, I think is really important for this character's journey. We're going to take a break and be right back. We all remember that moment. The first time we heard a theme from our favorite movie. How it stayed with us. Comforted us stirring our imagination. Sublime Noise is our Patreon-exclusive film score review show. Starting at just $4 a month, you will gain access to Sublime Noise as well as our Warehouse of Framerate episodes where we discuss and review our favorite films. To sign up, go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Can I ask you guys what you think he means when he says we can tolerate anyone, even the intolerable? What does he mean by intolerable? He means that she is the embodiment, in my opinion, certainly from my religious background, which I know you have one as well, Christian. Like, I feel like she is represent, representing actual lust, actual sin, actual... Um, yeah, uh, the difference between them staying the path and leaving the path for 
maybe raping someone else, maybe killing someone else, maybe doing terrible things. They, they've been on this balance beam, and so far they've had rails on this balance beam. But they, all of a sudden, the rails have been taken off, and she's there. And I think she's intolerable because don't you honestly think she is intolerable? Not as who she is as a character, but if if you stick, if you put a woman in a, say you put a woman in the in Rikers, in an all male area in Rikers, that's an intolerable thing. That woman will be probably eventually dead. Um, that that they are they represent or Ripley represents something that. Um, they cannot control. They so much can't control it that they've been in prison for it. So when you go to prison for rape and murder, there's something wrong with you because we all have switches. Like we get angry, we've all been angry, but we're we're not going to hit anyone, we're not going to kill anyone, right? Because that's, that's we don't do that. These people don't have that mechanism. They've gone so far as to let their lust or whatever's going on in their in their heads you know, rape people and then kill them or, you know, vice versa, whatever happens. So Ripley to me represents all of what they've done to people before. She is. So when Ripley's looking at Dylan, Dylan's not just seeing Ripley. Dylan's seeing the other women he's killed and the other women he's raped. That's what's intolerable. It's like, for me, it's like, I don't, I don't even know how I would, it's like, I mean, I had a cousin die from gang violence when I was 17 or he was 17. And I was 15. Um, and it's like, someone put me in a room with his killer that would be intolerable for me i wouldn't i wouldn't that's something that i I just could not do and they were forced to do it um and so then of course when you get to the rape scene um i was kind of like well duh well duh and then not just because there's a woman there but she's also acting like she can do Ripley, like you said, to your point, Patrick, she's acting like the Ripley we always know where she's going to go and do her own thing, but she's not reading the room. She is not safe there. She's the alien there right now. She is the threat to them before it all transitions and they realize the actual creature is the threat. Um, so that is my long answer to you. Yeah, I, I view the intolerable as what they view as intolerable about themselves. Right. And it's the classic religious story. Oh, the woman made us do it. They made us do it. Right. So that's how I interpreted it. It's just what I find intolerable in myself. She is the man, you know, manifestation of that. Yeah, completely. And I, I'm glad you're bringing this up, Christian, because that's a, that's a line that I always kind of wrestle with when he says it. Cause I'm always like, what is he, what is he really, what is he really getting at? But I think you're, you're both, you know, interpreting it the way that I usually end up interpreting it. Um, you know, it's worth noting that in addition to being violent offenders, they're also double uh, Y chromosome violent offenders, which I want to say that is an actual thing. Some males are born XYY with an extra Y chromosome. I just taught not- this today. Did you really? <laughs> I did. All right, I tell us about gen- it. Yeah, I was teaching genetics today. Can, I was can talking you about, um, well, it's basically a, a, a function of meiosis and how certain chromosomes don't, they fail to separate. It's called non-disjunction. So some eggs, you know, in the case of the double Y, like sperm can wind up with two versus one, and then that's fertilized. And then you get that extra copy in the case of the double Y. Um, sometimes that initial sperm fertilization, like it, it, for whatever reason, there's like a double copy, it could be a, a mutation. Um, 
but the why, you know, the thing that represents that maleness, and we tend to think of like testosterone and all of that, that's the, um, that double Y as we talked about, but you can have conditions where it's double X, triple X, or just one X and then nothing. So there's all, you know, kinds of crazy combinations. It's not like, if you have this, it doesn't mean you're like a murderer. I want to be be clear with people that we're not trying to say that. The movie Um, is though. The movie, but the movie, the The movie movie does, you know, rightfully so like, it's, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's a movie, but, um, but I I guess the, the reason why I'm, I'm bringing that, particular part up is like within the universe of alien three and and the alien saga, like we are being told that not only are these violent offenders, but they're genetically predisposed to violence according to the rules of this film. Right. So like, so they are, their destiny is to be violent and what they've done through this, you know, religious order and through serving their sentences and then staying on is they've transcended that for themselves, right? Like there is no, there are no weapons there. There's no violence being committed. We see people being very orderly. We see people coming to communal decisions on things. It's a really like for all of the shittiness of it, it's it's a nice place to be because like, you know, you're seen and understood as who you actually really are as opposed to any kind of artifice of anything else, right? You get a real sense of like, there's an honesty to their existence. And so Ripley's destabilizing to that. And that is like hugely traumatic for them. And I, I, I totally agree with what both of you were saying about that. But yeah, it's an interesting line. I wanted to, uh, mention another really powerful scene that I feel like is overlooked and uh, for but for the sake of some context in every film the two prior on in alien when Ripley is in the mother room and she's finding out information and she's distraught and she starts breaking down and then all of a sudden ash shows up there she grabs ash by the collar and kind of roughs him up and he's shocked by it and she has she's taller than him she's powerful she's a a big woman not obviously in this large like overweight but she's she's got a domination domineering force and she roughs him up and then of course in aliens you see her do that with burke she just takes control and you know and it's shocking you can tell in the moment it's shocking to these men um and even in alien 3 the the assembly cut she does that with actually even i think the theatrical a little bit she does that with 85 she pulls him up by the collar and he kind of breaks out, but he's also kind of shocked by it. And then she tries it with Dylan and Dylan just like slow throws her right up against the wall. And like, and it's the first time that's ever happened to Ripley. It's the first time Ripley is for lack of better words, put in her place. And I don't mean her place. Like this is the place that you belong, but in terms of the hierarchy of how things happen in this prison, she is not in control. Even this is post them turning to her and he's like, sister, do some leadership. Like they're asking her, what do we do? They're, they're coming to her. Everyone's looking up to her um, as the savior to help them get out of this place. Even within that context, Dylan isn't having it with her. Dylan's not going to let her. I mean, I don't think she'd be able to pick him up, but she grabs him by the collar. And it's like, look, like, like she's always done. And again, he, throws her against the wall and she slides down and he was, um, and he kind of tells her off. And I thought it was a really interesting moment for her character. And then you see her kind of shrink shriveled up in the corner defeated. And it's the first time I've really seen Ripley defeated. Now we've seen her distressed. We've seen her cry. We've seen her, um, 
in moments where she's vulnerable or when Newt is taken or when she finds, you know, she realizes she's alone on the ship and alien. But this is the first time in my memory, if you guys can correct me for sure, where I feel like someone else has put Ripley in her place, has has said, no, you don't have power here. I do. And uh, it's a really interesting dynamic. Uh, and it's a very, fairly long scene as well. And even later on, she's like, you need to kill me. And you can see this moment in his face like, man, I don't want to do this. I've already killed women before. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm here is because I've killed women. And I'm going to kill another woman. And I'm going to cut her head off or whatever she, he's going to do to her. And then he, he takes that. He, he takes his own agency like, no, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this for you. Um, and it's really powerful. And again, I feel like we haven't really discussed these power dynamics between Ripley and Dylan. She's not shared any power dynamics like this with any other character in any other film. Well, it's important to note, he does say that he'll kill her, but he says it dies first, then you, right? So he is going to do it, but but he has to, the alien has to go first, right? Or is he going to do it? Because at the very end, she he, he makes her get out of whatever that con- confined space is. It was the perfect place for her to stay and die. And he's like, you know, no, no, climb out, climb out. Your God will take care of you, sister. I wonder if maybe he really is never, ever going to do this again. Talking about conviction, he may say to her, because he's the one that figures it out, figures out, we can use this. If it won't kill you, then we can use this. And the only way that he can make her go along with that is to placate her by saying, and then, of course, I'll kill you, wink. But I've never thought about this before, but I'm wondering, there's no chance in hell that he's going to kill her because he's done with that. That's not who he is anymore. I agree. That's crazy. I've never thought of that before. Do you think he doesn't kill her for her sake or his his own sake? Because it's all about his redemption, right? And like you were saying, he's convinced, he has conviction that he's going to this better place, right? He's done the work. He's repented. And part of me thinks it's um, it's not so much for her sake. It's I'm not doing this again because I know where I'm going after this and I'm going to get there. Like, I think he's just singularly driven in that regard. And it's like, you're not like she's intolerable because you're going to you're not going to make me do that again and fall back and lose my standing with God that I have worked all these decades to get to. I feel like it's more of a selfish motivation. It's not so much about Ripley um, as it is. He's just, he's not going there again. The the only way I'd push back on that, I think that's very valid. I don't know that he believes that he is in any way redeemed or exonerated. I I think he truly believes because of what he's done, um, you know, he's, he's on the outs with God. He just knows that maybe having only two <laughs> only two murders on his record is still better i don't know i just ah it's it's really interesting as you guys know i really struggle with that final scene i feel like ripley climbs out because the script needs her to not because it makes sense for that moment and this is actually giving at least a little bit of of reasoning for why dylan is is telling her to climb out so i'm excited about that or I'll push back on you a little bit. I think in that moment when there's a this beast that's terrifying, I think you're everything is adrenaline and you want you're just let's get away. Let's get away. Oh look, we can get away. You can crawl up this thing. And I think that's what you do. You're not even thinking and then all of a sudden it was this moment where 
oh, we're going to crawl out. And then Ripley's like, oh, but wait, you're supposed to do this for me. You're supposed to do this thing. And by that time, she were, she kind of recalls that she's already at the top. So, But, I mean, certainly it could be, to your point, Christian, that's what the script needed her to do. But I also feel like in those, in a time like that where you're faced with what Patrick has perfectly said before, the face of oblivion, which is the creature, I th- something's happening in your body where you're it's 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 flight it's fight or, f- or flight you know and it was flight for both of them until it clicked in with dylan that i gotta stay here with this thing now there's some weird things with that whole scene like why wouldn't the creature just crawl right out then too like why would it stay down there with dylan but who knows maybe he thought Dylan was a threat to ripley so him keeping dylan down there keeps ripley safe probably that the reasoning that makes the most sense um but it yeah it's it's an interesting question to to understand why they crawled out or if it was in service of the script or if it was in service of fear or hey we we can get out i mean i I don't think dylan wanted to die i think he realized he had to die yeah i'm I'm gonna push back on you too i think if we all push back on each other eventually we just form a circle that's just pushing back (laughs) in itself no more bullshit around here. Um, no, I, I think I do think that Dylan stays there to distract the alien long enough for Ripley to do something about it. To me, she's going out to turn. I mean, she's going out to turn on the lead works. She's going out to keep the plan in motion, right? Isn't she? Isn't that what she's doing? So Morse is the one. Morse is waiting for the signal. Maybe yeah, he's she gives there the signal. Right. But she has to get the signal to him, you know, I, I think she's yeah. I think she's I mean, maybe she's going there to advance the script, but I think she's going there to advance the death of this thing. And then to make sure that then because the thing is that. All right. So here's here. If I'm Ripley in this moment, which I like to think of myself as, you know, I'm a kind of a Ripley person, you know, what the fuck is this bullshit that's coming down? <laughs> I, I wish. Um, but if I if I were what I would be thinking is I'm not going to allow myself to be killed until I can guarantee that this thing is dead. If she stays down in the lead works with with Dylan and the creature, she does not have that guarantee because it could get out after she died, right? And indeed, it actually does. Like it jumps out of the lead, right? So it's it's only after the sprinkler turns on that it actually dies. So I think that there, uh, to me, that's kind of what's driving her in that moment. I'll just push back that she was asking Dylan to kill her before the alien had been recaptured or captured the first time. I can't remember now. The recaptured, recaptured. In the, in the special edition anyway. Um, so there was a moment at least where she was more concerned about killing what was inside her than in dealing with the, the, the very real threat that was out there. But that's, that's a that's good, fun. that's a good pushback. That's true. I wish yeah. I could push back again on that, but I can't. That's a good one. <laughs> a really beautiful um, thing in the relationship between Dylan and Ripley. And I'm sure obviously all of you have noticed this is he's, Concerned about her well-being. There's a couple of times he's like, how are you? Are you okay? Um, clearly, there's things going on with Ripley at that moment where she doesn't know she has an alien inside her. And she's coughing and she's, you know, she can feel something's wrong with her or she's just out of it. She's probably just attributing to um, cryo sickness and being shaken out of cryo too early. Um, but Dylan is really, and then, you know, he asks her, he's like, I bet you're missing Doc. And he's like, she's like, why would you say that or whatever she says? And he's like, that's what I thought. He's like, well, you've been looking through some peepholes, but there's concern for him. I really feel like Dylan of of the convicts has atoned for his sins, for his, I see that. Like, I feel it from him that 
he rescued Ripley from a rape that he could have taken part in, honestly. Um, this man has atoned for his, I don't want to ever use the term mistakes when it comes to rape and murder. Those are horrible, awful, awful, awful things that aren't mistakes. They're intentional. Um, but I really feel like you can see it in his eyes that this man is sorry for what he's done. And Ripley is Ripley becomes two things. Whereas we're talking about her being intolerable in the mess hall, where then she becomes tolerable. She becomes his atonement. Ripley becomes Dylan's atonement for this film, her safety, her well-being, protecting her at every, I mean, essentially at every turn, as much as, you know, the script allowed it. Um, shutting up Morse, putting people in their place, letting her speak. Now, there is the dynamic that we talked about in terms of who has the power amongst the, between the two of them, and it's clearly Dylan, but he's really, he cares about Ripley in the way that Parker cared about Ripley and the way that Hicks cared about Ripley. But it's also this, he's a little bit afraid of himself. And you can see it, that this man's afraid of himself. He's afraid of himself in front of her. Um, but he knows what doing the right thing is. And it's, so I'm saying all this to also say, you know, you, we hear criticism about Alien 3, like, oh, it's just a bunch of people running around. We don't get to know anyone. If you're paying attention, there is really intense and in-depth character studies going on in this movie. Um, certainly with Dylan, I know we're going to talk about Clemens. We're certainly going to talk about Ripley again. But Dylan is highly complex. But to an earlier point that you made, Patrick, so much of that complexity is within the performance of Charles S. Dutton, his eyes when he looks at her, where you're kind of like, he's seeing her as a person. He's not seeing her as an object. He's not seeing her as a sex object or this or this this thing in his way of something else that he wants. And it's it is a it is a kind of a a, a transformation of this character before our eyes if we're paying attention. I feel like there are two moments with Dylan where we see through his words and his actions, how he feels about himself. Um, when Boggs and Reigns tell him in the, in the, the extended cut that they don't want to work with Gallic and they lay it out. They tell him, you know, he smells bad. He's crazy. And those, those probably are very true things, but Dylan tells him that they have to, because he's a brother and this is what we're going to do. And I feel like accepting Gallic, the most damaged member of this of this brotherhood, is Dylan almost saying to them, "No, you know, I'm I'm just as bad as this guy. We're all equals in this. You've got to take him with you. We're not going to exclude anybody." And then when he brings the lead pipe to to break up the attempted rape, of course he was. Her presence was was upsetting to him and probably was a temptation to him, but it's not okay. And I feel like. When he told her that that you know we we accept even the intolerable, and then for that to happen, it's almost like he takes it personally because they're breaking with his rules, and and he wants this harmony. He's the he's the focus of it all, and so I think he's particularly brutal in that moment because um, he's punishing them for his own weakness. Yeah, because if one of them starts to unravel, and that system that they built, you know, with like she kind of throws a wrench literally right into the system and then there's vulnerability for him to unravel. Right. So he's got to keep 
their, you know, all of the all of that they worked for to kind of contain and keep it contained. Um, I do think he's legitimately trying to help her right in that moment. But there's also that we can't have this because every it's all just going to fall apart. And then we're just going to descend back into what we were. Um, right. Cause he's again, put in the work they've all put in that work and they've got to keep that, you know, it's like having, you know, being, um, you know, clean and sober for years and then having that drink just constantly waved in front of you. Yeah. I, and just one, one more thing about Golic, who I think deserves a full episode. Now that we're kind of talking, I think that's another character we should really devote some time to because he's such an interesting window, not only into the themes in the movie, but into the way it was made. Um, but, you know, he also sticks up for Golic again when Andrews accuses Golic of murdering the prisoners, right? And he says, he's crazy, he's a fool, but he's not a liar, right? He says, you, you know, you don't know that he's never lied to me. That, I think, says a lot about him too, because, you know, when his back is against the wall, he will not let any of the brothers take the blame for anything, right? And he is more willing to accept the impossible than he is to allow one of the one of his brothers to take the fall for something. I, I guess, you know, as we kind of cl- come around to closing this conversation, which, you know, we, I'm not saying we have to wrap right now, but just sort of as we kind of get our thoughts together, I think Dylan does something really amazing that so few films do. And Alien 3 does this over and over again, and that he presents us with a character who is so clearly protagonistic by the end of the movie. Like he's so clearly a heroic kid. He has a fucking, he has the, you know, the end of Braveheart for his fucking death scene, you know, like he, he is, he is, he is a protagonist by any stretch of that definition. And yet he is very upfront that he is in committed atrocities, right? I mean, he hasn't just larceny to fucking car, like he has murdered and raped women. And we have to hold those two things in our heads, the entire movie, you know, we have to hold in our heads how we feel about redemption as people, as moviegoers, what we are willing to accept. Like he is the grayest of gray characters. There is absolutely, for for a guy who's so defined by his convictions, by his sort of black and whiteness, like morally speaking, there is nothing black and nothing white about that character. And in fact, the black and the white exist because of each other. They are intertwined with each other. His religious conviction and his incredible inspirationalism and his humanity and his love and his brotherhood and what he is able to bring out in people, which is great. I mean, he's able to make all of these ragtag convicts into like this well-oiled machine that looks out for itself, that protects itself. Like he's able to do these amazing things. And also he is also a murderer and rapist of women. And we have to hold those two things in our heads at the same time throughout the movie. So that even by the time he has his big heroic death sequence, we are still forced to, as Jamie opened the show with, reckon with the fact that we know that this guy probably fucking deserved it because of what he did or did he that's the question and that's what's beautiful about alien three is the whole thing is gray like that the whole thing is so hard it's so inscrutable and that i think is part of why it's so ever presently beautiful to talk about you know i think part of how we we can find him palatable or any of this right i think part of how we can accept that if you think about it is we don't see him committing these acts Right. Anytime there's a villain on screen where we see the atrocity being committed, no matter what other good things that person does, it stays with us. But if we hear about it and we see them doing good acts, 
you know, it's more digestible to us, right? I don't know if you guys have like watched Game of Thrones, but I mean, was there ever a more hated character than um, what's his name? Joffrey. Joffrey or the other oh, yeah. one? The Bridgeway? No, the one with. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right. Not right. The sausages. Right. Yes. That right. <laughs> like, no, I mean, he was a horrible character. He never had a good moment, but we saw what he did and there was no getting past that ever. I don't care what that guy did after. <laughs> there's no getting past that. Whereas, I, I mean, I know we're intelligent enough to know what it would look like without having seen it, but it is. When we see them being good, it's easier to digest, I think, than the visual of of seeing them do these horrible things. So I think that's part of it, too. Um, but there is that redemptive arc there as well. Right. But that's what we're seeing. We're seeing that redemption. And do that's you think had we, had we seen what he had done, could we accept him? I wouldn't have as, I mean, maybe, but I, I know I would have had way more difficulty with that. Um, well, and we're given a taste of that with junior where yes. in, again, in the, in the extended cut, he does what he does and then sacrifices himself to, to lure the creature in. And, you know, I don't think anyone is sorry to see him go, but there's that moment of, do we actually like him for a moment? <laughs> I don't know. I, I was thinking, and again, this is taking in accepted fan lore or the texts that exist outside of the movie. But when when this episode was first proposed, I'm thinking, well, obviously Drake and Vasquez are murderers and they were serving time. And that's how they ended up in the, in the colonial Marines. That's everyone knows that. Well, no, not everyone knows that even though it's James Cameron's background for those two characters, it's not stated in the movie. And similarly, we know from the, the dossier that we see behind Ripley in her inquest scene, Kane had a, a, a trajectory as a, as a, in a medical field, but had a drug addiction and was uh, kicked out of that. And that's how he ended up in, you know, long haul trucking. Uh, but again, that's, that's not something that's said out loud in any of the movies. You have to dig a little bit to find that kind of stuff. So almost in, um, in, in blatant opposition to the show don't tell rule. The only reason that we know of what Dylan did is because he fucking says it and it really works. That's, that's a, that's a, that's almost the example that proves the rule because boy, I don't want every movie to have someone say something like that, but because he does say it, we have to reconcile it. Everything else he does for the rest of the movie, we're thinking about what he said. Right. That's an interesting point to make that he does say it because, you know, I've seen whether it's movies or TVs or shows or whatever, everyone in the prison's always innocent, right? Um, but the road to recovery for a lot of people, whether it's drug addiction or whatever, when you're in recovery, the first thing you have to do is speak it. You have to say, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. My name is so-and-so and I'm a whatever. That was what Dylan was doing. I am a murdered rapist of women. I don't know how many other of those guys could have said that. He fully owned it. And that was uh, uh, to to the idea of hear, hearing it and not seeing it. I find it interesting because it's one of those things where you find, you know, people in a neighborhood find out that someone 
killed somebody else in the house. I'm like, oh, they were so nice. And it's hard for them to wrap their minds around it because they've never seen him that way. And Dylan is more palatable because we didn't see his crimes, um, which uh, is an interesting thing, um, like that we can stomach him more um, because we haven't seen his crimes. But I will say that I think that Dylan... Like, if you look at all the rest of the convicts, Junior, everyone, there's this kind of, like, uncertainty in their eyes. You look at them and there's 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 almost something missing from them. There's an emptiness to them. Um, you can see it in Morse. You can see it in um, everyone. You do not have that same sense with Dylan. You look in Dylan's face, you see a, full, a human there. You see humanity there. And I think that's the what sets him apart from... Everyone else, he's the only one saying, what are the guys? How are the guys doing? We got to find out what's going on. He's the only one doing that. He's the only one that seems um, moral for, in, in, in objective terms, that he's come around. He's, he realized what I did was a terrible thing. Now, of course, he never says that. But his again, his statement to Ripley, he has owned it. He has owned that I've done some terrible things. And... Not a lot of prisoners will tell you that. Not a lot of prisoners, even people who are guilty and they know they're guilty, to own the truth, to talk about the truth. Um, the truth hasn't finished with them. Um, and when it's done, maybe they can own it. But until that point happens, um, they're afraid of it. That It scares them. And Dylan has owned his truth. And I think he's really the only one, aside from maybe Clemens, but Clemens is kind of quiet about it. He's a clearly embarrassed about his backstory, clearly. But Dylan is the only one, even more than Ripley. Ripley's not even honest with herself or with Clemens about actually what might be going on on that colony. Dylan's the only one that's like, this is what's going on. You might be intolerable. I'm a murderer and I'm a rapist. This is what, here, here, I, here I am all out on this table for you. No one else is doing that except for Dylan in this movie. Not even Ripley, which is different for who she is and you get the sense that like at one point that was his hair shirt right like that was his that was his penance and then it became something more than that it became him it became a part of his self-conception you know um and that i think is really makes a, an impact on us i, I want to also say you know charles s dutton got into acting in prison that was like he you know, acted in a play for Christmas at the jail that he was serving time in. He got a bunch of other, you know, inmates together and they, they started putting on theatrical productions and it turned out he was really great at it. And like, you know, within years he was at, you know, Yale uh, getting his MFA. I think that, you know, when you talk about redemptive arcs, it's important also to look at his life. You know, I mean, he's somebody who has had this beautifully illustrious career. He actually went away from acting for like 20 years because he got into farming. Um, and actually when we reached out to him, you know, I, I reached out to his agent probably four years ago to come on the show. And the agent was like, he's really just farming right now. <laughs> like that's basically what he's spending his time doing. Um, you know, it's not like he's like a hermit. He's not, you know, avoiding interviews, but he's got, he's got a lot of like crops to fix right now and he's shoveling chicken poop. So like, he's kind of busy. Um, and Charles S. Dutton, basically, he made it as an actor. He had a string of really successful things in the 90s, especially. And then he just like kind of semi-retired and he's doing some things now. But during that retirement period, he had time for himself to like see this childhood dream out of what it would be, be like to have a farm. And uh, again, like I just can't fathom anybody else playing Dylan 
anywhere near as well as Charles S. Dutton did. And there's some great actors out there who I'm sure could have done a really good job with it. But he, it's, it's, it feels faded to me. It feels like that was the part that he was born to play. And, you know, in, in closing for me, I think it's just another, another window into all of the crazy improbabilities that Alien 3 presents to us because we have a broken script with a dejected director. We have a cast that is miserable. We have a set from another movie that never got made being shoehorned into another movie that they didn't even realize what was going on with it. We have a cast and we have a crew that had already been hired for a different project and then left and then had to come back again and nobody wanted to do it. We had a budget that was long gone. We had six different writers working on a script. And yet at the end of the day, we had a movie that feels like it was designed to happen the way that it happened. And Dylan is a character that is so emblematic of that more so than anybody else other than Ripley to me. Dylan makes Alien 3 because he is Alien 3, because he is that impossibility. He's like that one in a billion character actor portrayal who pulls off the impossible, which is like he brings to life something that uh, is completely ineffable. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Get the hands up. Yeah. <laughs> well, said. I think. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, said. I, I do feel like as we start talking about these characters are really tied to each other. And in in a way, the Marines are tied to each other. I mean, they're they are brothers, they're comrades in this life that they've are living. And I feel like we're going to eventually come back around to Dylan, certainly as we approach who Ripley was in this in this setting, which I think is fairly volatile um, and complex as well. Um, and just the the dynamics of what's going on there. So this has been really exciting to me. Again, I was approached this like, okay, yeah, let's talk about Dylan. Like, how much are we going to talk about? But it just got really layered and deep. And uh, it makes me appreciate this movie even more. Like, how how much detail is in this movie and, and in the performances and how much time went in to make this movie the great movie that it is, despite how difficult it is to watch. Yeah, I have to say, every time I either hear you guys talking about it or I'm engaged in conversation with you about it, you make me appreciate it a little bit more. In this case, definitely a lot more. I mean, I, I, I absolutely appreciate it, but you're always coming with a different angle that I either have not seen before and never really thought about. And I love hearing your opinions on it. So I'm looking forward to more. Well, I, I love bouncing all of our opinions off each other. And, you know, I come in with a certain bias of how I feel about the film. And when you guys can gently push back and say, but did you look at it this way? Or did you consider this? And so I'm coming out of this conversation quite honestly, with a new appreciation for the possibility that Dylan is completely, a, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Um, he's completely re- repented. He has, he feels that that entire part of his, of his history is in the past. And I hadn't thought of that before because of certain things he says in the movie, but I think that his actions make more sense in that context. Christian, I think the word you were looking for is uh, joyful. I think that's, that's how <laughs> I, that's, 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 <laughs> I don't want no more bullshit around here. Um, I think the word I was looking for was crud. Crud. <laughs> uh, before we wrap, I just want to give a couple quick shout outs. One to Magnus Schulquist, or sorry, Mag- Magnus Schulquist. And Magnus, please tell me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, he writes in after a lot of episodes. I always love hearing from you, Magnus. And he wrote in after our commentary saying how glad he was 
that we allow for different opinions and that like on alien three in particular, even though it's a movie that's really close to our hearts, you know, we can still pick it apart and have people on with different viewpoints. So that kind of goes to what Christian was just saying. And also a shout out to Ken S who's a very long time supporter of ours who just upped his Patreon pledge. Thank you, Ken, for doing that. And if you want to join Ken and everybody else who supports us on Patreon, again, just one more time, you can go to perfectorganism.com slash support. Uh, I just ran out of breath when I was saying that. Um, and, and if you do so, you'll get instant access to a ton of shit, including an upcoming frame rate on the North Man, which I finally saw last night and was freaking great, uh, as well as a recent Sublime Noise that we just put up uh, yesterday on uh, The Fountain, the Darren Aronofsky movie that Clint Mansell scored. Uh, we have content going out left and right, including early access to things. So please do sign up if you're on the fence about it. It's just a, a few dollars a month and um, and you help us to do you know all the, the stuff that we're working on. So thank you, everybody. Yes, thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah. Thanks so much. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.